Colossians chapter 2. Start at verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom we are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Let's pray. Father, Father, thank you for um, thank you for your son. Father, thank you for showing us that we have the greatest gift to boast in. And we do not have to settle for our wretchedness. That we don't have to settle for the things of this life. But we don't have to settle for mere man's words. But we get your words. And we get your truth in place of our falsehood. We get your wisdom in place of our arrogance. We get your grace in place of our selfishness. We get your face and instead of just the beautiful creation that you've put us in even as marvelous as it is we get you and fathers we work through Paul's words here this morning I, I pray that we would see Paul's cry for the Colossians and for us to see your face even in the midst and particularly in the midst of deception. That our satisfaction in you, our glorying in you, our reveling in you, that in the midst of that, that the deception would be minimal. That we would not succumb to that deception of our day, 
But Father, we would be so satisfied in you that it would just be something that passes through our life in one door and out the next. And we do not succumb to the deception and the lies that surround us, that are fed to us even sometimes by good people and bad people alike. Ultimately, knowing that all deception comes from the evil one. The father of lies. Instead, Father, help us to be satisfied, firmly rooted, deeply committed to the truth of who you are and that you've revealed to us this day. Father, let us look anxiously to your word. Desiring to know its truth. Father, it's for your glory, for your praise. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. I want to encourage you um, to uh, be taking notes. It's been a while since I've said something about taking notes. Uh, And I I want you to... um, Understand that what we are talking about today and what we talk about every week is not just a matter of knowledge collection. It's not just one more book to throw up on a shelf. If what we've talked about the past two or three weeks particularly, uh, if that is true, then what is at stake in what we learn in this word? Our salvation depends upon it. That is worth taking notes on. Believe it or not, even as, as goofy as this may sound, as I'm teaching, oftentimes, I, I, obviously I don't have a pen and paper. Maybe that would be a good idea. But sometimes I take notes as I'm teaching in my head because God teaches me things as I'm teaching you things. Things that I need to know. And oftentimes I go back and I will write them down at other points. And sometimes it's just God just goes, you know, he just shows it. And I go, man, I wish I would have figured that out like, you know earlier this week. Uh, it's been great to have that in my notes, but um, I just want to encourage you to, to take notes. Um, recently, it's, it's kind of been funny. I, I've, I've been uh, not bad heat, more like poking fun. Uh, I had, have had some pastor friends poking fun at me about how long I preach for, and, and uh, I just want to say to you guys um, that I thank God that um, he has put me in a church where we can talk about God's word this long. It's not for the sake of time. And I'm not saying that those who preach for 30 minutes that, uh, that they're sinning or in any way do anything that's wrong necessarily. I think it's very contextual. But I just thank God that he has given many of you guys a hunger for the word that, that transcends my inability to speak. That it's his word. And that you guys are hungry for his word. So I just want to start off with that. And since we're talking about teaching, we see around us today lots of teaching, right? Lots of teaching going on around us. And sometimes formal, sometimes informal. Um, I've been recently involved in some online discussions, <laughs> of which sometimes I still regret. 
But uh, fa- AKA Facebook debates, I, I still just blows my mind that even that concept. But I, I've been recently involved. Would someone grab me a tissue? I would like to blow my nose. Otherwise, you're going to hear me sniffle uh, the rest of the time today. Uh, that would be really annoying. Okay, so I've, recently, I've been involved in, in some of these Facebook discussions. I don't even know if I call them debates because... Well, there has to be at least a certain level of intellectualism to have a debate. Um, and sometimes that's a little lacking. But um, we have teaching all around us. Like whether we see it or not, there's teaching that happens all around us. And uh, how many of you guys listen to other preachers on podcasts? Like other than sermon here, listen to other preachers. Okay. Um, thank you so much. I'm going to turn my microphone on. Ew, I'm just kidding. <laughs> okay, there we go. Here, you want that? I'm just kidding. <laughs> all right, it was all clear, no green stuff. Okay. Um, right. <laughs> okay, podcast, right? So how many of you guys listen to I saw your hands. Okay. Uh, how about TV preachers? Hey, man. <laughs> I, I don't know if there's any good ones on there anymore. Um, sorry. Uh, that was a hit. I'm sorry. All right. Uh, but here's the deal. We have many uh, amongst those teachers, and sometimes good, um, lots of false teachers as well. Will you pull my mic down just a little bit? When I start screaming, it's going to be really loud. There we go. Uh, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to scream. But, like, we have false teachers, And we have false teachers around us, whether we realize that or not as well. Um, Lots of false teaching, even on on something like Facebook. And the danger, I think, of Facebook and false teaching is that it becomes, it's so subtle, right? It's so subtle. But other teaching, and particularly people on on television, um, they can almost be taken at their word because, well, why would this person have such a big audience if what they were saying was false? And so I think there's a trap there. I want to quote to you a few teachings from a famous book called Your Best Life Now. Joel Osteen says, Anyone can create by faith and words the dreams he desires, health, wealth, happiness, success. If you develop an image of success, health, abundance, joy, peace, happiness, nothing on earth will be able to hold those things from you. So as long as you can develop this idea, nothing on earth can withhold that from you. He says, get your thinking positive, and he, as in God, will bring your desires to pass, or to pass. He, speaking of God, regards you as a strong, courageous, successful person. You are on your way to a new level of glory. How do you get there? That's my question. How do you get there? He says, believe, visualize, and speak out loud. He says, words release your power and give life to your dreams. And my favorite one, there is a miracle in your mouth. There's a miracle in your mouth. 
Some people need a miracle in their mouth. I'm sorry. It's called brushing their teeth. All right, going on. I know the, and he says this, this is the last thing I want to say. He, he says, I know these principles work because they work for me and my wife. Largest church in America, probably the largest audience, followers. This health and wealth gospel, among many other deceptions, is rampant in our culture. Now, here's what's interesting is that you always have someone who says this. Maybe even someone out there saying this. Well, what if God uses a guy like that to draw men to himself? So what if God can use a guy like Osteen to draw men to himself? What if my uncle would listen to him but wouldn't listen to your preaching, Matt? And here's the deal. I have no doubt that God could use someone like that in that kind of teaching to draw someone to himself. I mean, in Numbers 22, God uses a jackass to draw someone to himself. And today, God can use someone. But I want you to realize the exchange. For that one or two people or 10 or 20 people that may be led closer to Christ, what about the tens and hundreds of thousands of people who are led to hell because of the false gospel being taught? That's not a good exchange. That's not worth it. And so we live in this culture of false teaching and I've talked about the kind of the Facebook thing already, but maybe some subtle, more subtle uh, teaching. Let me quote one from me from a recent discussion I had. The person says, almost the entire catechism and the majority of Christ's teachings are on our personal relationship with God. So why do we as Christians spend so much time and effort on what others are doing? I said to him, what do you do with Paul? What do you do with the Old Testament? Also, are you implying that based upon a statistic of Christ's teachings, that we should follow that which constitutes the majority and therefore ignore the rest? I don't think that is what Jesus meant in Matthew twenty-eight twenty when he said, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And this person's response was, Matt, we have well established that you and I have different theologies that a few posts on Facebook won't fully cover. And so I just left it at that. <laughs> uh, but different theologies. We really just have a different view of God's word. I believe it's authoritative, and he believes it's, it's a good book to look at and pick and choose what I want. But the reason I bring this up is because this is a public comment that was just left out there for however many friends this person has to read and how many people do you think, unknowingly, go read that and go, yeah, that's a good idea. Why do we do that? It sounds plausible. Sounds reasonable. It's not far-fetched. He's not saying to go out, spin around four times and yell out Jesus and you're going to get to heaven. Like that doesn't seem plausible. This seems plausible. It's false. And it can easily wrap people up into it. So we have false teaching around us all the time. Sometimes it's intentional. Sometimes it's just ignorance. Uh, 
Sometimes it's just ignorance. I have an example of that I want to give to you a little bit later. But Paul is addressing ultimately here in chapter 2 verses 1 through 5. This idea of false teachers within the church and, and, without, and outside of the church. And obviously the risk is true today. So with that said, let's reread Colossians chapter 2, 1 through 5. And see what he says. He says, "For." I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their heart may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this... The stuff he just got done saying. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So first of all, Paul starts off. Keep your Bibles right there in 2 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians, Colossians chapter 2. And he starts off with, I want you to know. Basically, he wants them to know what he's about to say could be easily missed. So what Paul is getting ready to throw out there could be easily missed. Basically, what Paul's saying, I really want you to know this. And what he wants them to know is two things. He wants them to know that of his great struggling in serving the gospel And he wants them to know who it's for. Why? Why is Paul telling the Colossians this? Think about today. Think about today. Do you know anyone who wants others to know how hard they are working? Anybody know someone like that? You don't have to raise your hand. They they want other people to know how hard they're working. How about, does anybody know anybody that every time you talk to them, that that person's always tired? Like, I'm tired. You know, I'm just worn out. And every time, though, like, every time you talk to them, they're worn out. This life is hard. You know, if we're doing this, what is, what are our motives tend to be? Like, my motive tends to be because I want appreciation I want approval. I want someone to pick up some of that load for me. I, I want them to pat me on the back. I, right? I mean, am I the only sinner in here or are you all with me on that? Are you all with me on that? Okay. All right. Just making sure. Paul basically wants, but here Paul's motive isn't to attract sympathy or admiration for his working so hard. Paul wants his readers to appreciate the way in which God is in fact working to bring them to maturity in their Christian faith. Does that make sense? Paul wants the Colossians to understand the way in which God is working in order to bring them to maturity in their Christian faith. Basically, he's saying, I want you to know for your good. This is what I'm doing, and it's for your good. I'm struggling, and it's for your good. So... 
Before we jump into kind of the main point here, I want, I want, to, want us to take a step back at the text and go, we need to look at the big picture of what's going on so far in Colossians. Because the risk here, in, particularly in the way that we teach here at Renovation, one of our risks is that we can focus in on a collection of words so tightly, so closely, that we begin to miss the big picture of what's going on. On. And we've been doing that so far in Colossians, very focused in on some specific words. Um, we need to step back and take a look at the big picture. So first of all, we need to see that the purpose of what Paul wants his readers to know has already been hinted at in 23. So look at chapter 1, verse 23. It says, If indeed... You continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and earth, with which Paul, I became a minister. So he says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. So this is the purpose of what Paul uh, wants his readers to know. Uh, basically what Paul is saying, and we spent two weeks talking about this, that there is a necessity to persevere, a necessity. We don't like that today. We like, I'm saved and I'm good to go. But there's a necessity to persevere. If indeed, there is no like, doesn't matter what you do because you will be, no, if indeed is Paul's words. So this is where Paul says, this is the purpose. And this is also where Paul says, this is what I became a minister of. And basically, since this point, Paul has been explaining his role as a servant of the gospel. So since this point, here's the purpose, and since this point, he's been explaining his role as a minister of the gospel. In 23, he was hinting at a danger. Do you see the danger there in verse 23? Now, he will make this more clear, this danger more clear as we move through chapter 2. But basically, the danger is of not persisting in the faith, or not persevering in the faith, not being established and firm, but in fact, shifting from the gospel that you heard. That's the risk, that's the danger that's in place. And we have that same danger today. For some Christians, they succumb to that danger and then they find themselves in a position that would indicate that they're lost. And I think in many cases they are. And I don't want to get rehash that. But the way that I think that this often looks for us, that we, for most Christians, they succumb to this danger, but they continue to, on the outside, live out this, this supposed life with Christ and then no one ever challenges them. But in their minds, they have succumbed to shifting from the hope of the gospel, not standing firm in their faith. So they've learned the actions to do, but their hearts and minds are far from God. This is a real danger for us today. So in order to prevent this from happening, Paul draws his readers to pay attention so carefully and fully to his work as a servant of the gospel. So basically, this is the context for, I want you to know. Paul's saying, I want you to know. He's saying, there is a great deal at stake. And I just, I just this is a frustrating point for me at, at this point, even in 
today's talk or sermon. I wish there was a way that I could just go into your heart and type in coding for this is a big deal. Like capital letters, like write it up. I don't know what I could do, but to under, for you to understand that our salvation depends on this. Like it's that big of a deal. Something that we can't take lightly. I have two sentences that I'd like for you to try and shorthand jot down in your notes. First one is this. Paul wants the believers to know and understand God's ways with the gospel. Paul wants the believers to know and understand God's ways with the gospel. You can just put a little hyphen in there. How God works through servants of the gospel. Another hyphen. It's terrible English, I know. That's okay. So that they will not shift from the gospel. They will not shift from the gospel. So he wants the believers to know and understand God's ways with the gospel, how God works through servants of the gospel, so that they will not shift from the gospel. This is Paul's point. Second sentence. You're going, that was like three right there. Second sentence is this failure to understand God's unexpected ways. Failure to understand God's unexpected ways can make a believer vulnerable to being seduced by alternative messages which may come in more impressive ways. Failure to understand God's unexpected ways can make a believer vulnerable to being seduced by alternative messages, which may come in more impressive ways. We will hear much more about that as we get to the middle of chapter 2, and today we're just going to work through the first five verses. So, with that said, and with those two premises in mind, first point, consider always the work of the gospel servants in your life. Consider always the work of the gospel servants in your life. So, Colossians 2, verses 1 through 3. How great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of fullness, assurance, of full assurance and understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom all are hidden the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Let me ask you a question. Who are the gospel servants in your life? Who is it that's struggling for this cause in your life? Who is it that struggles to see this cause in your life? That's a serious question that you need to ask because it's going to be very crucial in your perseverance. Let me give you some examples. Your pastors, I hope you see that as someone who struggles personally to see this be true in your life. That's what it means to be part of a community of believers. That's why it's important that we do this life together. So we have pastors, leaders that do this. For some of you, your spouse. Hopefully all of you, your spouse. I believe my wife struggles 
And we're going to talk about how, this, how she struggles, how pastors struggle, how Paul is struggling in order to see this. But I believe my wife struggles to see this true in my life. Your parents, your mentors, good Christian friends, accountability partners. Who in your life is struggling to see this true of your life? So first point, kind of sub-point underneath recognizing those gospel servants is those gospel servants struggle greatly, should struggle greatly. Paul was struggling greatly. He says, how great a struggle I have for you. Basically, Paul begins by underlining his own exhausting labor as a servant of the gospel. For how great. And basically what Paul, here's what's interesting. Paul is picking up on what he said in verse 29 of chapter 1. Look back at 29 of chapter 1. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have. So this is where Paul's at, that they, he struggles greatly. But the question then is, what did Paul actually struggle with? What was such a toil for Paul? I think Paul is talking about primarily two things that he struggled with. First of all, Paul struggled in praying. Paul, this awesome author of the New Testament, struggles with praying. We probably don't think typically of prayer as toil and struggle. Um, I have to be honest with you. Prayer is a toil and a struggle for me. I am such a doer and such a task-oriented person that to me, oftentimes, because of my flesh, prayer doesn't seem productive. So I toil to pray. Discipline myself to pray. And I have to admit, I'm not where I want to be. And Paul is saying he toiled to pray. And I think Paul's toiling is not so much in the getting to the point of prayer, so much as it is just the agony in his praying for the Colossians. And I ask God often to give me that kind of heart. I would pray and struggle more for purposes like that. So Paul, he says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have. This is what the gospel servant does as he is praying, is struggle, and he's saying it takes effort and discipline. And Paul is saying, I want you to know that this struggle is happening. Can you see now as we are living through this life, as we are trying to seek after Christ, particularly Colossians as new believers, how it might be encouraging to know that someone is toiling and struggling in their praying for your walk with Christ. Do you see that? How encouraging that is. You know how encouraging it is when I hear people say, you know, I was praying for you the other day. You know, I've been praying for you. That's encouraging. So Paul is saying, I struggle to do this. The other thing Paul struggles is in proclaiming Christ. 
I mean, the dude who writes half the New Testament struggles in proclaiming Christ. In verse 28 of chapter 1, he says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. This, too, is very hard work. This is what brought Paul his suffering that he spoke of in verse 24. Look at 24. Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up with what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. So Paul is proclaiming Christ, teaching everyone with all wisdom. Not just those outside of the church, but inside as well. So everywhere, I mean, we know this from this context, everywhere the proclamation of the gospel is opposed with hostility. He's working hard at persuading, at urgent warnings, at careful instruction of every possible person. There's hard, hard work. So what Paul is trying to say to the Colossians is that, I want you to know how great a struggle I have. Guys, this is a gospel servant. Paul is a gospel servant. We need to recognize them in our lives. We need to recognize those gospel servants in our lives. We need to foster their role in our lives and welcome them into our lives. And, and then the other side is we should be striving to be like Paul here. Like we should be striving to be gospel servants. Like we should be toiling and struggling for the sake of others, for particularly their walk with Christ. We should be concerned about praying and proclaiming for their sake. Next, Paul's purpose as the gospel servant. What is Paul's purpose as the gospel servant? How is it that Paul's labors were for the benefit of people whom he had never met? How is that the case? He is saying, I am praying with all that I have. I am proclaiming Christ no matter how much effort it takes in order to see a deep and profound outcome in your lives. That's what Paul is saying here. And I think what Paul, Paul describes it here in basically three dimensions. What are these three dimensions of this outcome in their lives that he is struggling for? The first dimension is that our hearts should be encouraged. Colossians 2 verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged. He wants them to know the comfort and courage that knowing Christ brings. Same thing for us today. Knowing the comfort and courage that, or having, being encouraged and knowing the comfort and courage that knowing Christ brings. That's, I said it right. We need to know that today and be encouraged by that today. Second thing, we should know the powerful bond of love that knowing Christ gives or Christ brings. In verse, verse 2, he says that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love. What's being knit together? The lives of the believers. The lives of the believers is being knit together. 
That's why part of why, I mean, there's many other reasons, but that's part of why we can't do this life alone. That's why there is no solo Christianity. That's why God established the church. What's the overall concern here? The concern is the deception. Do you think we're going at this life solo without your hearts being knit together with other believers who are firm and uh, stable and steadfast, how you might be able to float with the wind that comes by as a solo Lone Ranger Christian. Instead of having someone who says, hey, no, I, that's, no, that's not right. That's deception. I don't think that that's correct. And Paul is saying that they would know this powerful bond of love that Christ, that knowing Christ gives. Number three, we should strive to grasp all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. How precious, think with me for just a second, how precious is it to understand and know God's glorious purpose for the world? Just think about that. How precious is it to understand and know God's glorious purpose for the world? That includes you and I. That includes the person in Africa. God devised this plan, decreed this plan, carrying this plan out to perfection. And how it affects us. Think about what deep confidence understanding Christ confers. One thing I love with when I was in seminary and even this past week being back on campus for a a class is my professors, and not necessarily all of them, but the ones that I had experience with, they knew God knew Christ, knew his word so well that there was just an assurance that they had, like a confidence. You know what I'm saying? Like, they, just knowing Christ and the confidence that that brings for everything, for parenting, for proclaiming the gospel to those who need it, to, to living the gospel out in our everyday lives, to trusting him with an illness, to everything, that the confidence that knowing Christ brings. And, and the fact is, is that that's all available to us too, like not just a seminary professor. Like it's, it's there. It's there. We have the same Holy Spirit. It's there. I just took this past week um, a class on Christology. And it was kind of like a three-day intensive class on Christology. And, and I tell you what, like, um, just the truths about Christ, Christ's role in the Trinity, um, seeing things through, a more, through more clarity, like, for instance, Christ and his humanity— We have so deified Christ today as to almost completely dismiss his humanity. So that when we say, well, well, Christ was without, 
you know, without sin for those 40 days in, in the wilderness, we, we say, well, oh yeah, but that's because he was, that's because he was God. No. It's because in his humanity, he depended upon the Holy Spirit. That's why. And that same Holy Spirit is the same Holy Spirit you and I have. So, knowing those truths and the, I mean, just think about that confidence. If, if Christ can go through this, and I, I, I have to give you a small tidbit. This is not in my notes, but like uh, Dr. Ware said this. He goes, if the cross would have came at the age of 12 when, when Jesus was found in the temple, would Jesus have been ready to go to the cross at that age? And, and Dr. Ware, and, and, I, and I agree with him on this point. He says, no. He would not have been ready. You say, why? He's God. He could have done it. And I do agree if God had ordained for the cross to come at 12, he would have been ready. But the ordination of the cross coming was not until later, 33 or whatever the age, right around there was. So he would not have been ready. What if the cross would have came three years earlier when he was 30 instead of 33? Would he have been ready? No. Why? Because Christ's struggles, the struggles in his life, brought him, prepared him for the cross. Even the moments in the garden prior to the cross, when Jesus says, Father, if it be your will, please let this cup pass from me. You said, But he's God. Like, he's got this whole thing down. What's that all about? It's because he was a man. And we have so deified him that we've forgotten his humanity. And so in those moments when Christ is crying out to God, let this cup pass for me. If we maintain our overemphasis on the deity of Christ and to dismiss his humanity, our only option is to claim that Christ was being theatrical. That it was theatrics. It was a show. I'm not willing to say that Christ and his sufferings and such was a show. It was real because he was 100% man, 100% God. But you see, we're knowing Christ. It's not just, see, here's the deal. We live in this culture. We simplify everything. When you say, I just know Christ and everything's going to be good. No, it means to know Christ. It means to continue knowing Christ more and more. To continue knowing him more and more. The assurance that this brings, the confidence that this brings. That's what he says, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery what is mystery? That which was formerly unknown that has now been revealed in Christ. That we would reach all the riches. Like for me, I was sitting, I took Dr. Ware when I was back in seminary, and, and he'd given a similar lecture on the humanity of Christ, and, and, and I'm working through that, and I'm going, I think I just discovered a different Jesus. <laughs> like I grew up knowing Jesus is God, Jesus is God, and oh yeah, he was a man too, but Jesus is God. And, and then they get to that, I'm going, yeah, it's there, I see it. And then even this past week, I mean, I've been out, hadn't taken that class for like three or four years, and I'm sitting back there just hearing these truths, just washed over my soul again, reading these passages, washing over my soul again, and I go, I now know even more fully the assurance 
the richness of understanding the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. That was formerly unknown and has now been revealed to us. So, the Revised English Bible says the full wealth of conviction that understanding brings. That's heavy. The full wealth of conviction that understanding brings. This is why Paul was struggling, so that the believers would know that. Paul described the final goal in 28 of chapter 1 where he says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Now he wants his hearers to know his strenuous work towards that end for them and for us. Now remember, the next point I'll remember that the focus is for us to have our eyes fixed on Christ. Man, I struggled with how to phrase this. So I'm just going to admit, I don't even particularly like that phrasing. I think it's true and correct, and I think it's based on the Scripture. But I wish I could like, have like 15 fill-in-the-blanks right there and say, like, remember the focus is for our, for our eyes to be fixed on Christ, for us to be enamored with Christ, for us to be uh, completed, for us to be lost in Christ, for us to just be completely, uh, yes, you get my point. Like, this is the focus Paul wants them, because later we're going to find out that how do we avoid this deception? We remain in Christ. We remain satisfied in Christ. That when we have tasted that goodness, nothing else could satisfy. So, just in case any of us are not completely clear on what Paul is getting at, he says, in whom, in verses chapter 2, verse 3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in Christ. Paul tells us again this mystery. You know, there's Old Testament books like Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes that speak about the wisdom human beings need to live in God's world. Like the wisdom that we need, that we are so lacking in today. The question is, where does this wisdom come from? Where is this place of understanding? Let's read Job 28, verse 20 through 21. It says, For where then does wisdom come, and where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Think about this. This is in Job, but now... Paul says that the secret has been revealed. Think about that. That the secret, this wisdom and understanding has been, has been, was hidden. God hid it and has now revealed it in Christ. Paul never taught the Old Testament without proclaiming Christ, at least post his conversion. The Christian life, never taught the Christian life without the centrality of Christ or an understanding of anything without Christ. 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 All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge and understanding are hidden in Him. Basically, think about Paul's Paul's claim here. Uh, to steal the professor from this past week, to steal his famous word, it's astonishing. Paul's claim 
is astonishing that this mystery hidden for all eternity past has now been revealed in Christ. Why do we settle for other things? Like I just have to ask it. Why do we turn to other things? When all wisdom and understanding and knowledge has been revealed in Christ. And this is a question for myself. Why? Why do we turn to other things? Paul does not mean, though, that once you know Christ, you will automatically know all the answers to all of life's questions. On the contrary, the wealth of wisdom and knowledge and understanding found in Christ is so vast... <laughs> that we can expect to be exploring it all of our days. Think about that. Like, no boredom. Like, if you're bored with Christianity, you're doing the wrong thing. Like, you're not studying well enough or something. Something's not clicking. Like, exploring the depths of this richness. This past week, again, as I was sitting in this class, and I'm just, I don't know, I, just, I, felt, I felt, again, like this uh, fire hydrant, right? Like you're just standing in front of the fire hydrant with your mouth wide open. You ever tried to do that? Well, not a fire hydrant, but a hose. Right. Chapman was in his pool this past week, or yesterday, sorry, and uh, we have well water. And well water is very, very cold, typically, compared to city water, because the water comes from the depths of the earth, and, and so... I get home and Chap's out in his little kitty swimming pool and he's naked. And, uh, and he starts running around the yard. I'm like, dude, get back in the pool. But what's funny about the pool is he wouldn't sit in it because it was cold. But then what he would do, you could dad, dad's the one that aggravates, you know. So dad has to take the hose and spray him with it, you know. And, and he just goes, <laughs> The funniest thing, <laughs> you know. He just stands there. I'm like, uh, dude, you need to start running or something. You know, dad's going to chase you around the yard. All right. So anyways, in, in the midst of all of that, he tries to drink from that hose. I don't know if it didn't click that the same hose that dad was spraying him with is the same hose he's trying to drink from. But, you know, so he goes to drink and everyone's just getting on. He's like, ah! and, and then he's trying to drink, you know, and the hose is just good water pressure. And, and you know, guys, like I, my prayer I really, I prayers that Sundays would be like that, that when you go daily into God's word, that it would be like that, that you are just soaking up the word, that you are growing and you're just going, I just need more of this and realize that we can continue to grow in this. We will never scratch the surface, the depths of our glorious Savior. We can't even begin. So, consider always the work of the gospel servants in your life and what their aim should be. And you, as trying to be a gospel servant like Paul is, what your aim should be and what you're struggling with. But Paul, in this particular context, is saying, this is what I struggle with, and it's for this purpose. So be warned, there is a great danger so Paul's saying, I'm struggling for this, for you, because there is a great danger. And he says in verse 4, I say this 
all of this stuff that just told us about Christ and growing in the full assurance of him, he says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. One thing that I find is a great battle today um, is for the careful thoughtfulness of the mind. Careful thoughtfulness of the mind has disappeared from our day. We do, 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 say, say, say with very little thought, careful thoughtfulness to what it is that we're doing. What it is that we're saying. We live in a culture where we never think through anything. I think that's a big indictment, but I would stand very firm behind that indictment. We don't think through anything. We live in a culture where we don't think, we, we don't think through implications or conclusions of anything. We don't, we don't think through the implications of, or the conclusion or the, the final result of our financial decisions, our marriage decisions, our parental decisions. I think Satan has us right where he wants us when it comes to that. Like, I'm not talking about where we just need to take one weekend a year and kind of carefully think through everything and then we're good to go. This is a moment by moment dependency on Christ and letting him guide our thoughts, our careful thinking in everything that we do. We live in a culture. Guys, being on Facebook in recent days, I'm going, did you really think about what you just said? Because that don't make any sense, or that's just stupid, or, well, that might be reasonable, but if you take it out just a couple steps beyond where you're thinking and the implications of it, it's not going to happen. It's not possible, or that's ridiculous. And just to think about our daily lives and what we don't take the time to think through, but we just do, and then we wonder why we end up where we're at. And we wonder why we lay in this bed when we're the ones that put the frame together, we're the ones that put the sheets on, chose the colors, chose the softness of the mattress and chose the hardness of the pillow and chose the place in the room and then we get to lay in it and we wonder why it feels the way that it does. We don't have careful thoughtfulness in what we do. Let me give you an example. Someone on Facebook this past week says, do you think that there will be denominations when Jesus returns? He says, I think not. So why do we have them now? And then he quotes, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We all be doing the same thing. (laughs) That's plausible, right? It's plausible. I, I, you can go on there, it's, it's public for anybody to see, but you can go in there and see my response was like this long. And, and I, said, I said to him, I said, even if there were fewer denominations, Church of Christ, for example, baptismal regeneration, false gospel, would never want us to be associated with that. To be associated with a denomination that teaches a false gospel. Think about the implications of that. Yeah, we're just like them. 
So you can go believe there. Or they so, so it really doesn't matter which church I go to, so I can just go to this one or that one. You guys believe the same thing? No, we don't. Jesus plus anything will send you to hell. That's a denomination. We're a denomination. I mean, at least by the way, our general culture defines denomination. I don't want to be associated with that. Paul would not want to be associated with that. He fought against that. Just study the New Testament. Joel Osteen, for example, I don't want us to be so. And unfortunately, we get clumped together even at the very, just the fact that we're both Christians. So like, I don't want to let go of the denomination thing because, lo, I don't want to be associated with that. Now I did say, look, I do think there should be greater cooperation between denominations that have uh, more similarities. I do think it's wrong for one denomination to think that they're right and everybody else is going to hell. I think there's Baptists that will be in heaven. Be a lot of them will be in hell. Uh, lots of Presbyterians that will be in heaven. Lots of Methodists that will be in heaven. Yes. Charismatics, lots will be in heaven. But to say that one's right and none of them are wrong, or one's right and they're all wrong, is, is totally, we can't say that. It's, it's God's word. But the idea to have that, that is, the careful thoughtfulness of that phrase was gone. Like there was no careful thoughtfulness to that phrase. And so now let's lead everybody else to think the same thing when I haven't carefully thought through what I'm trying to teach. So, careful thoughtfulness. This is a danger. Being persuaded from stability in Christ this is the danger alluded to in verse 23 when he says, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. Now, we should be quite clear why we need to appreciate the role of the gospel servant. That it's his role is important in his prayer and struggling and proclaiming these truths to the people in Colossae and to us today. And the reason here is because there is a very real danger of being deceived. Next point, there is deception all around us. The seriousness of the danger of being deceived is, is the corollary of the wonder of the truth. So because of the wonder of the truth comes out of that, this danger of being deceived. And verse, here's what's awesome. Look back at verse 5 in Colossians. He says, Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. The truth is, Christ is the one on whom all things, including us, depend for our existence and our reconciliation. That's 15 through 23. We're dependent upon Christ. The blood of the cross is the power to heal creation in verse 20. And Christ is the hope of the world in verse 27. To be turned away from this truth is a massively serious danger. And the whole world tries to turn us from that truth. That Christ is the hope of the world. That the blood of the cross is the power to heal creation. That we depend on him for our existence and our reconciliation. The homosexuality debate right now that's, that's gone and is caused by our president, uh, or at least 
brought to the forefront in light of his recent words. Christians, I have just seen this over and over again, where we are turning away from the truth of God's word. To the point, I heard a Christian say, well, the Bible and that, and this is a Christian, supposedly Christian. The Bible, that's good for, you know, the definition of that's good for you and your religion as a Christian, but it should have nothing to do with the government. It should have nothing to do with the government. Your view as a Christian should have nothing to do with your views in politics. Really? Really? Think about that. That's stupendous to say, I'm going to put God in every part of my life except for when it comes to my political views? Really? That's how God would want it. That he just kind of separated, you got government over here, and then God can have the rest of it. Really? Foolish. Foolish. Hmm. It is those who believe this gospel who tend to care most about the truth and take the danger of deception most seriously. If you don't understand the gospel, then you don't understand the deception and the danger. I, I, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. To be deeply concerned about the theological truth is not pedantic. It is wisdom and goodness. To stand for theological truth is wise and good. Do you, let me just pause for just a moment. Do you see where you might face persecution in doing so? Hmm? Also, this is what Christianity is about. It's not just about sharing the gospel and use words if necessary. That's foolish. Even misquoted, but foolish. Hmm. How can you defend these theological truths without words? It doesn't happen, right? So there is more to being a Christian than just simply, Jesus loves you. We're talking about God's holiness and his truths as the truths revealed to us. Now ultimately, like God doesn't need us to defend him, right? We should take a stand on, on God's words lest we be deceived. Deception, next. Deception is usually delivered in persuasive speech. What would it take to deceive you? Think about this for a moment. What would it take to deceive you? Paul says 2-4. 2-4. Uh, like 2-4. 2-4. All right. Colossians 2-4. I say this in order that you may, that no one may delude you with what? With stupidity? With grandiose ideas? With pipe dreams? No. With plausible arguments. With something that is seemingly possible. And maybe even seems good. Believers, though, are not likely to be, de- be deceived by unimpressive arguments. It takes often persuasive speech to deceive. This we must be aware of. Persuasive speech will sound as though it is right. That's what makes it persuasive, right? The more right it sounds, listen to this, the more right it sounds, the more dangerous it is. Hmm. Persuasive speech itself, though, understand, is neutral. 
Like the idea of persuasive speech is neutral. It can either persuade of the truth or be used to deceive. But persuasiveness and plausibility can be deceptive. And this is why we need to recognize the true servant of the gospel who very often, think about this, very often will not be impressive. Paul, it was impressive as far as his looking back, knowing his, his, his Old Testament uh, prowess and his knowledge. But we're talking about someone who is struggling, who's being fought against, who is going through suffering, and this is the person delivering the truth. Not the person pulling up in the Rolls Royce uh, and the nice fancy suit jacket delivering this well-put-together, fine speech. That's not an always case-by-case, but understand that, that God's ways are not always the most impressive ways. So, persuasion, he says, may delude you with plausible arguments. So, recognize the gospel service. Be aware of deception. Last point. However, in all of this, see the joy. See the joy. Paul says, 2.5, For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Let me ask you a question. Are we to understand from all of this that God's great purposes for the whole world rests on the labors of the likes of Paul. Think about that for just a moment. Are we to understand from all of this that God's great purposes for the whole world rests on the labors of the likes of Paul? Could it be undone by something as simple as the persuasive speech of others? Think about that. Could it? Don't, don't shake your head or raise your hand or vote yes or no. Think about that for just a moment. Could it all be undone by the persuasive speech of someone else? What about the garden? Adam, Eve, tree. It's a pretty persuasive speech. Was it all part of God's plan? Absolutely. Did he decree it? Absolutely. But was it undone by persuasive speech? Absolutely. (laughs) And we live in a culture of very, very unthoughtful, non-thoughtful working, not using, not thinking through. Hmm. Yes, it could all be undone. This is why for every advance of the gospel, every time we hear of faith in Christ among the nations, here locally, foreign, for every person who continues in the faith, stable and steadfast, we should thank God. Because there's lots at stake, and it's all dependent upon Him. We thank God when we see that. This is God's work. He is doing it. And the struggles of Paul, the difficult toil of gospel servants, are achieving their purpose because it is God's purpose and it is God's purpose to do it this way. Do we see that? This is God's chosen way for gospel servants to be toiling and praying, proclaiming us to be aware of the deception and be thoughtful and, and, and working through these lies or truths and 
and then being concerned about the same in the same way for others. This is God's design. But here's what's awesome is that Paul's letter, even so far, is not full of anxiety or distress, but it's full of joy. It's full of joy. Next point, we have spiritual connection. I have a spiritual connection that transcends geographical locations. He says, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit. It means much more than being with them in thoughts. There is a bond of the spirit that the spirit creates between all of us who are in Christ. It is a bond that distance does not weaken. Next point, rejoice because the sufferings will have a God-glorifying outcome. Verse 2-5, For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good works and firmness of your faith in Christ. Paul began, look at this, Paul began his discussion of his role as a servant of the gospel in verse 24, he told us that he rejoices in the sufferings involved in serving the gospel. Look at verse 24. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And then in 2.5, he tells us that he rejoices in the outcome of that struggle. Do you see that? Verse 24, For I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. This is what I'm suffering for. And then in verse 5, For though I'm absent in body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So he's saying, I, this is what I'm struggling for, and now I'm rejoicing because I'm seeing the outcome, the effectiveness. Lastly, persevere, remaining firm and in good order. For though I'm absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your, what's he say? Does he say to see your holding firm to the, it doesn't matter what I do, I'm still a follower of Christ and got my ticket on the train ride, whatever. Is that what he's saying? No. What's he rejoicing? To see your good order and the firmness of your faith. That which he's referring to earlier on. Paul is telling us that there is something to be delighted about. Their ordered lives come from firm faith in Christ. Think about that. The value of us knowing Christ. Our ordered lives come from that firm faith, firm faith in Christ. And since all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are to be found in him, firm faith in him is the best basis there is for ordering our lives. Beware then of being deceived. Deception takes root when we believe the deception to be more delightful than Christ. When we see that deception and we go, I'm going to go that way instead of his way. And we succumb because we see that as being more satisfactory than Christ. I hate to oversimplify all of this, but I, 
really believe it comes down to, and what Paul is saying it comes down to, is that we must be satisfied in Christ. I want to ask you these questions. Are you firm in Christ? Are you stable in Christ? Is your redemption found in Christ? Is your hope in Christ? Is your love for Christ? Do you desire Christ? Are you captivated by Christ? Or are you captivated by something else? That deception. Let me read to you something John Calvin said talking about Christ. He says this. He says, We see that our whole salvation and all its parts are comprehended in Christ. We should therefore take care not to derive the least portion of it from anywhere else. If we seek salvation, we are taught by the very name of Jesus that it is of him. If we seek any other gifts of the Spirit, they will be found in his anointing. If we seek strength, it lies in his dominion. If purity, in his conception. If gentleness, it appears in his birth. For by his birth he was made like us in all respects, that he might learn to feel our pain. If we seek redemption, it lies in his passion. If acquittal, in his condemnation. If remission of the curse, in his cross. If satisfaction, in his sacrifice. If purification, in his blood. If reconciliation, in his descent into hell. If mortification of the flesh, in his tomb. If newness of life, in his resurrection. If immortality, in the same. If inheritance of the heavenly kingdom, in his entrance into heaven. If protection is what we seek. If security, if abundant supply of all blessings, in his kingdom. If untroubled expectation of judgment, in the power given to him to judge. In short... Since rich store of every kind of good abounds in him, let us drink our fill from the fountain and from no other. Some men, not content with him alone, are born hither and thither from one hope to another. Even if they concern themselves chiefly with him, they nevertheless stray from the right way in turning some part of their thinking in another direction." Yet such distrust cannot creep in where men have once for all truly known the abundance of his blessings. We are satisfied in Christ. And we are so enamored by him that deception comes by. I'm with him. That's false. The careful thoughtfulness and living in his abundance and his blessings. That's what Paul spent so much time saying, I'm toiling for this, that you would know him. That you would know him, that you would be, know the full measure of the riches of him. So when that deception comes by, no, I've got this. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your truth. Father, thank you for not giving us some weak faith, 
some possible belief system, some thin string that we hold on to that some dude said 200 years ago. Father, we cling to a heritage. Father, we cling to something that has been eternal, something that is everlasting, that even your very words did not come out of nowhere, but came from your Son, who is the Word. Father, I will not boast in anything, but I will boast in Christ. This Christ who is the Word, who has revealed the Almighty God to us. Father, let us not quiver. Let us not sway. But let us stand firm and stable and steadfast in the gospel that has been proclaimed to us. Not swerving from its truth. Father, thank you that we have the power of your Holy Spirit to do this, to run this race, to attempt this task, to finish this race successful. And it's the same Holy Spirit that our Savior Jesus had as he went to the cross, as he ascended, de- descended into hell, and as he resurrected and ascended to your right hand. Father, let us not never take light the danger of deception that bombards our minds day in and day out. But instead, we would beg for your mercy, beg for you to extend your grace and putting hedges around our minds. And, and when things do creep through, that, that we would be given the strength to thoughtfully consider that which is being presented to us. And Father, we give you the glory for the outcome and for the situations that we find ourselves in today because we know that all of them are for your glory. And Father, we give you the praise. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You guys are dismissed. Have a wonderful day.